Hello, and welcome to the Healthcare Law Today podcast presented by Foley and Lardner. Each month, we'll bring you a different thought leader to discuss current legal trends in the healthcare industry. I'm your host, Judy Waltz, partner and chair of Foley's healthcare industry team. It's a pleasure to have you joining us today. Before we begin our show, I want to remind you to subscribe to Healthcare Law Today, either on iTunes or your preferred podcast app. Please visit our website at healthcarelawtoday.com. For today's show, I'd like to introduce my colleague, Jana Kalarik, to discuss some of the intricacies of the Stark Law and the impact it can have on healthcare organizations, especially surrounding physician compensation. Take it away, Jana. Thanks, Judy, for the introduction. My name is Jana Kalarik, and I'm an attorney with Foley and Lardner, focusing on compliance and regulatory matters, including the physician self-referral law, which is also known as the Stark Law. I've been practicing for over 19 years in the health law space with a broad array of clients that include academic medical centers, hospitals, physician groups, ancillary providers, and investors in healthcare. For today's podcast, we're going to talk about some practical considerations that affect compliance with the Stark Law, namely fair market value and commercial reasonableness, what it means, and we're going to walk through examples of how it can impact your organization. We're not going to go into a bunch of background detail. We would hope that you would give us a call if you need that. This is really intended to be a high-level discussion of this focus area of fair market value and commercial reasonableness. So with me today is Angie Caldwell. She's a principal at PYA. Angie, do you want to share a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Thank you, Jana. I've been in healthcare for approximately 20 years, and in the past 10 to 12 years, focused primarily on physician compensation relative to fair market value and commercial reasonableness, designing physician compensation plans as well as uh, helping hospitals and health systems to integrate, um, to look at various types of arrangements to integrate physicians into the fold, whether through employment, medical directorships, or professional services agreements. I'm the managing principal of PYA's Tampa office. Great. Thanks so much for joining us today, Angie. It's a pleasure to have you as part of our podcast series. Thank you. Glad to be here. So there's been a lot of movement with regard to the Stark Law and the interpretation of fair market value and commercial reasonableness. We'd like to talk a little bit about that. Can you tell us in your mind how things have really changed over the last 10 years with regard to the interpretation of those fair market value and commercial reasonableness? Sure. Well, Jana, I know you and I have had several conversations about this. You know, the, the Stark Law is a little bit sticky. And as the environment continues to change and as investigations and settlements and cases continue to move through the legal system and and regulatory world, the focus on physician compensation continues to be heightened and continues to be at a high level. And with each new settlement, something new is learned about how the, the law may be interpreted, which involves then an increased pressure on compliance professionals and um, organizations that integrate and compensate physicians through various arrangements. 
So there is talk currently about Stark Law changes, potentially some reform on the horizon. But until that happens, this is the the law that we have and and what we are uh, working with on a daily basis. Yeah, it has been, and this is one of the one of the issues related to the Stark Law that is something that is that is sort of removed from our lawyers' purview. So we really do bring you guys in, you in particular, in to address these issues when they do come up when we're trying to comply with a particular Stark Law exception. So let's talk a little bit about some of the issues that you've faced or been asked to address with regard to. For example, new physician contracting, unknown productivity issues or payer mix issues that have that have come into play. Can you talk a little bit about those those issues as they come up and sort of how that it becomes complex in, in your world? Absolutely. So one of the things that that we at PYA get asked about regularly is how to handle advanced practice providers as it relates to physician compensation. So, you know, thinking about every, you know, many physicians have the benefit of the assistance of an advanced practice provider. So, and just a quickly level set, advanced practice provider, you know, can mean a nurse practitioner or or a physician assistant, um, most likely. And so with these new providers into the fold and into the practice, they can help the physician become much more productive. And so about 60 to 70% of all employed physician compensation uh, models are on a productivity basis. So as you're thinking about how the APP then impacts the physician's productivity, then the question becomes, is the physician truly being compensated through that productivity-based model on only personally performed work RVUs? How is the APP then impacting that physician compensation? We get asked about that a lot. So from a how to look at that and how to analyze that, and by way of example, Things to consider include how the work RVUs are generated. Are the work RVUs uh, split shared? And are they incident to? Uh, or are they globally billed? And in all of those instances, special consideration needs to be made to ensure that the physician is only being credited for the productivity personally performed or that there is a mechanism within the compensation structure to allow for that. And um, again, something new out there and many folks are, are thinking about that. Give us an example of how this might come up when you're analyzing somebody's compensation. Are you seeing it with regard to incredibly high WRVUs? Are you seeing it with regard to, you know, compensation that's over the 90th percentile? Is it sort of a combination of both of those issues? What flags that issue for you? Or is it really something that you're just analyzing as a given for all physicians? Sure. It really is most impactful when you do have that highly productive physician. So when those work RVUs start to creep up over and above the 75th percentile and the provider has an APP or more than one APP um, to help them with their service, that's when we really begin to to dig in. Not to say that it doesn't have an impact also for a, a median producer, 
but it becomes more of a concern from a compensation perspective when the provider is a is higher producing simply because then the impact of that APP, um, whether through a, a globally billed service or, or a split shared service, becomes more, becomes more um, just in terms of, of volume. Um, and to the extent then that physician is being paid on every work RVU at 100%, it beca- can become quite impactful. So it's very important when analyzing physician compensation, when an APP is involved, to understand what the APP is doing and how the APP is supporting the physician, as well as get an understanding of the impact of that on the physician's productivity, especially when the physician is paid on a productivity basis. So is this something that now you're addressing as you come in to do compensation analyses for a physician? Is it something you look at sort of initially to sort of see whether the physician is using APPs and then sort of pull that into your analysis of kind of how that compensation or how the WRVUs of the APP may be affecting the physician's compensation? Absolutely. So again, when that productivity level gets over and above that 75th percentile threshold and the physician is also using an APP, we begin to analyze it more closely. Again, it's, a, it's an impact at the, at the lower productivity levels, but more important at, at the higher productivity levels. And how we analyze that, again, is to look at how the APP is being utilized, how the work RVUs are being generated, and whether through uh, split shared or, or being globally billed, and then look at the impact to the work RVUs from a compensation pr- standpoint. We look at compensation as if the physician is getting paid 100% of the work RVU to ensure that that's fair market value, as well as applying a potential discount to the work RVU to still ensure or still make sure that the total stacked compensation is fair market value. Yeah. So does that involve really a, a deeper analysis of the WRVUs that are coming into play with that particular physician and sort of who is the performing physician? Do you, you know, for example, obtain billing reports that would give you that data? Absolutely. So in a, an incident two setting, can more easily see that if you're running your productivity reports on a rendered by provider basis instead of a billing provider basis. Split shared is a little bit harder to see because most often that occurs, again, in the inpatient setting where the um, APP will start the note or the encounter for the day in the medical record system And the physician will take over so that then the note, the entirety of the encounter, then at that point when the physician signs off on that and does their part from a patient care perspective, they take over the encounter. So unless you can get and drill down into the notes for that uh, particular split shared visit, it's it's very difficult to see. The other part of this is a a globally billed arrangement, a, a globally billed care set care where you have 30 to 60 days or maybe even 90 days post-procedure where the patient is following up, maybe in the physician office or, or otherwise, and the APP is taking care of that visit, but that visit was included in the global bill for that CPT code. 
that is also very hard to see because the individual visits then within that global package, while they are are noted in the medical record, the provider of record for billing purposes is then the physician. So it's really a matter to drill down and really understand that information. You would need to get down into the notes within the EMR or perhaps do time studies, interviews, work well in order to be able to get an estimate of, of the level of that APP support. So is, is, give us an example of sort of a problematic arrangement where you really had to dissect what was going on with a physician compensation. Coming in sort of was the physician at sort of above the 90th level that kind of flagged the issue. How many APPs were they using? And then how, do you, how did you end up sorting it out to make sure that the physician was only being comped fair market value and frankly, commercially reasonable because it needed to be for that physician's own service. So a good example of this, uh, we recently looked at a gastroenterology physician who was utilizing the services of an APP. The gastroenterologist from a benchmark perspective was well over the 90th percentile from a productivity basis. Once we dug down into the detail of the work our views, and again, this physician was paid on a productivity basis, we were able to determine by really a, an accumulation of all of those means that I mentioned, whether it was notes in the medical records, interviews, you know, time studies, et cetera, we were able to determine that the APP was assisting the physician about 15%. So approximately 15% of the physician's work RVUs were in relation to services uh, or in collaboration with services with the APP. So the physician was credited for the entirety of that work RVU when in all actuality, the personally performed component of that work RVU was only about 85%. So in order to analyze that, we looked at it two different ways. First, we looked at the total stacked compensation and looked at the total accumulated non-discounted work RVUs, if you will, against that compensation and looked at that compensation per work RVU and, of course, benchmarked that. Then we also applied a discount to the work RVUs to say, okay, if we only looked at the personally performed portion of this, what would that look like? So total stacked compensation divided by the discounted work RVUs, what does that compensation per work RVU look like? Uh, when compared to benchmark data. Simply speaking, if you, in the discounted analysis, if you have a provider that is benchmarking at greater than the 75th percentile compensation per work RVU, additional documentation and analysis would need to be done on that discounted basis to ensure that the compensation being paid is fair market value. That makes sense. So, What's what's interesting to me in sort of figuring this out is there there is a component of of physicians' time, effort that is dedicated to supervising APPs. We've seen it in the past as sort of a flat fee, and sometimes those have carried on. Sometimes it's part of the WRVU that they're being credited in this way that we've discussed. How do you parse out sort of really that role of the physician and supervising the APP, which, you know, is deserves compensation? And then this analysis that sort of pulls out the WRVUs related to the to the work that that APP has done. 
Yeah, it gets tricky, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So when, because there's absolutely a a value there for the physician and supervising the APP. The APP is absolutely helping the physician be able to provide better care and and as an extension of care of the physician. And to do so, then the APP has to be supervised. Different states have different rules for that supervision. So it's very important to understand the individual state regulations as it relates to supervision. Um, Some states require more than others, um, which may be an indication as to the, the value that may be applied then for that supervision. So in the case, and, and one thing that's tricky about this, uh, there, there are many, but one thing is to the extent or if the physician is also paid for a supervisory stipend in addition to 100% of the work RVUs generated by the physician through the billing scenario, there could be a cause for pause and further analysis because could it be questioned that the physician is being paid twice for the same supervisory service? Once through the crediting of productivity through the work RVU, and then second through the supervisory stipend itself. So you have to be very careful in that situation when you are paying on a productivity basis to also consider the need for and amount of any additional supervisory stipend. Supervisory stipends, again, are there are certain circumstances where they are absolutely reasonable, especially where there are requirements for the physician to review a certain number of charts, for example, in addition to the day-to-day supervision, if there's an additional review of charts, evaluations, et cetera, that have to be performed, potentially additional supervisory compensation may be warranted. But is it is it the case that at least more frequently, because a lot of models, what we've seen is that obviously the model has, has switched from monthly compensation to the WRVU model. Right. And that's happened over the last several years. Are you finding really that from that change from being really a monthly flat amount that physicians have been paid with that addition of that supervisory $5,000, $10,000 in addition to that, that you're finding that that's a vestige that just needs to be eliminated as you switch to the WRVU model more frequently than not? Yes, I, I do agree that it because it becomes so tricky with the productivity model as to how much of that should be considered personally performed and therefore credited to the physician, most often what we are seeing is that the supervisory stipend is going away. And that makes sense to me as well. And that's something just to note for, for our provider friends out there that it's, you know, uh, something to look at in their compensation models that are WRVU based. So one of the other things that's, that's come up that's been a concern, at least from a, from a case law perspective, it's one of the things the government valuation consultant has brought up frequently, is physician practice losses. I wanted just to touch base on that for our provider friends, because I think it's it's concerning from a hospital-based practice perspective, because there are those practices that are frankly not making money. And so when you're brought in and in those particular circumstances, can you 
talk a little bit about the things that you look at related to those practices and and determining whether in that case, the compensation to the physician is commercially reasonable. Yes, absolutely. And it is something that is on the, the folks that we work with, it is on their minds a lot as they're looking out across their employed, uh, their owned physician practices. And they're looking at that as an entire portfolio and and considering the the losses on those. What makes it difficult in a, a hospital-based, a, a hospital a practice-owned setting is that the losses are inclusive of administrative overhead allocations pushed down to the individual physician practices. Sometimes that administrative overhead allocation that's pushed down is of a larger amount than would be accumulated or put on the financial statement or income statement of a a privately held practice. So that accumulates and adds to the, the loss that is shown for that physician practice. So when analyzing those physician practice losses, it's very important to understand the administrative burden and the administrative load that's being pushed down to those individual physician practices and then compare that to what may be an administrative load in the the private practice world because the two are very different. Also, what's different in a a hospital-based physician practice setting is that many times Practices are established to benefit the community in a way that maybe a private practice physician wouldn't consider. For example, a a pediatric clinic that is set up in a a low-income, very low-income area, maybe a rural area, where 75 to 80% or more of that uh, physician practice revenue is Medicaid-driven. So, yeah, so in that case, you're looking, while the, the practice, because the fair market value compensation for the physicians, in, in that case, may be not in excess of collections, but then once the hospital overhead is added on and the other administrative items added on, it would be uh, nearly impossible to be at a net income. For that practice. So then the need of that comes into play when considering the commercial reasonableness and analyzing that practice loss. That makes a ton of sense. And so it's that community need issue that a lot of hospitals focus on when they're when they're recruiting physicians. What about, and it sounds like this is part of what you mentioned just now, which is it's the payer mix, right? So as you said, if it's, you know, if you have a high Medicaid population or if you have a high non, non-pay population, all those things can affect that as well, correct? Absolutely. So Angie, let's talk a little bit about, let's give a, an example, a case study or a scenario that can pull into to the analysis some of the things that we've talked about at a, maybe a higher level. So a good example that you and I have talked about in the past is really a physician practice being acquired by a hospital where these compensation issues come up and come up over multiple physicians. Let's play into that the hospital wants to pay those physicians higher than what they're currently being paid. Another factor to, to, to think about is let's consider the physician compensation though is lower than their production 
and what market looks like. And also is sort of a third factor that would affect the analysis. The managed care contracts really haven't been negotiated in a while, and they're really being comped under those contracts at Medicare levels. So let's talk about what are the factors that you would look at? Tell me how you would maybe look at comping those physicians possibly at a higher level than what they make right now. Sure. So there's a lot going on here, right? <laughs> With all in <laughs> yes. this fact pattern, there's a lot going on. Well, you know, paying a physician more to be employed by a hospital um, coming from a, a private practice situation in and of itself is not problematic. But you do have to weigh all of these things. And, and, you know, the facts that you've put out, Jana, are, are very important to consider because you are looking at what the physician in private practice was able to generate as compensation, which in and of itself is for that practice and with that specific set of facts and circumstances was fair market value. So then the question becomes, as that physician becomes private practice or moves from private practice to employed, why isn't that lower compensation for the same services in the same market still fair market value? So all of the things, so a couple of the other things that you said become very important um, because what has happened in the private practice, those scenarios, for example, the, the collections related to the managed care contracts, that's a fact that when that physician or that group of physicians moves over to the hospital-employed setting, that fact is going to change. So, or you would hope that that fact will change, which then creates a new scenario, a new fact pattern uh, to be analyzed for that physician compensation arrangement. So you really have to look at what were the drivers of why the physician wasn't able to generate fair market value compensation on their own in private practice versus what will be the fair market value compensation as an employee or as an employed practice slash provider of the, of the hospital. So you look at the expense structure differences, you look at the productivity and what productivity that physician is able to generate in connection with the hopefully newly improved collections on the hospital side, and then and consider that. You do have to be careful. So I, I opened up these comments by saying giving a raise in and of itself is not problematic to the extent that the raise is not reasonable and is not aligned with all of the other facts that are coming into your new fact pattern from the old fact pattern. If the, if the raise then becomes unreasonable, and if then the raise that the physician is getting is then throwing off a practice loss under the hospital umbrella that is unreasonable, then you would want to, to lower the compensation for the physician. So all of those things have to be uh, weighed and measured appropriately. That uh, makes a lot of sense. Let's talk about one more scenario that I think could be helpful and, and something that provider clients do call about as well. And that would be a new physician that's being recruited from outside of the community and being brought in and offered, you know, community sort of market compensation, but there's no history there. So you don't know productivity levels. You really don't know much about what that physician is going to is going to turn out. 
talk, talk to us about things that you've done in sort of establishing FMV, um, fair market value and commercial reasonableness with regard to new physicians. Sure. And we get answered or asked, we get asked this question all the time. Uh, first and foremost, you have to, to document and demonstrate the need um, for the provider type. Is that documented in a physician needs assessment? Is there another needs analysis that has been done for the, for the physician? First and foremost, very important. One of the second things to look at is to look at what other providers of that type are being compensated in that system. So to the extent you have other whatever specialty uh, physician that you're bringing in, what are their compensation structures? Should they be similar? Should you start this physician at a, at a relatively similar base and in a, in a, with, with all of the, the same um, compensation components? You do uh, need to consider, again, we've, we've talked a lot about roles, responsibilities, duties, and productivity today. As part of that needs analysis, the organization needs to understand what do they anticipate the, the professional clinical duties of that physician to be? How long is the ramp-up period? Um, guaranteeing compensation in a market for a one- to two-year period is not uncommon. So while the compensation would be at a higher level than potentially that ramp-up productivity may suggest, that in and of itself does not make the compensation problematic as long as the need and the ramp-up period and all of those other factors have been addressed and, and considered and, and documented. One thing to consider, and we, we see a lot of this, is that when that ramp-up period is over, and you've, uh, again, uh, you've established what the market compensation is, whether through your, your own market and own experience with providers or through benchmark survey data, when that ramp-up period is over, should the organization consider putting in, when as the, the contract flips then, maybe from that guaranteed base period to a productivity model, um, should there be a productivity floor that is established to support the base? So in other words, the ramp up period was two years, the base was set on an implied or an anticipated productivity level. So what if the ramp up period is longer than anticipated and you get out into year three and the physician still isn't producing as what was anticipated in that initial needs analysis or initial needs assessment. A work RVU floor is a very good tool to use to protect the organization then from potentially compensating uh, the physician in excess of fair market value. So let's talk, one of the things that you and I have talked about as well that I think is part of some of the stuff that you analyze is just initial physician engagement, coming in new to a, to a practice and, and setting the comp for a brand new physician in a particular area versus maybe physician burnout and being a little bit concerned about those issues. Can we, can we touch on those issues a little bit? Absolutely. Hot topic in the industry uh, right now. Um, Jana, like you said, you and I have had some several hallway conversations um, on this topic. You know, so there are several ways to combat burnout and engagement through a, a physician agree agreement. We are seeing a, a lot 
of providers move to sign-on bonus and retention bonus structures uh, for physician compensations. They are adding that on. No problem with that, um, generally speaking, from a, from a compliance perspective or, or fair market value perspective. Where you have to be concerned is when those values start to become large, where they where there is no clawback period, there's no repayment provision for those retention or sign-on bonuses, or in the case where you're just, again, just totally out of the market from that perspective. Also, from a retention bonus perspective, you want to be sure that you're po- you have a policy in place for a retention bonus. In other words, a retention bonus just can't be made to a physician to make them whole because there's been a change, another change in the compensation structure or a decrease in productivity. Retention bonuses, there needs to be a plan, there needs to be a policy, and physicians should be treated the same in accordance with that policy. Tensions and sign-ons just can't be stopgap measures, if you will. Right. And that's, that's frankly a legal issue from a stark perspective, because you can't come up with a retention bonus at the end to make somebody whole if it isn't baked into the agreement from the Exactly. Yeah. So, right. And the clawback prov- provision, that's, you know, we've seen a lot of that in, in physician compensation arrangements. And one of the things that I always push on with the, with the provider clients is, can you get it back? You know, because physicians are... Nobody, frankly, it's physician or non-physician. Nobody wants to pay back money that they believe that they've earned. So how, from a structuring perspective and from your perspective, how have you seen that play out or have you seen that play out? You know, so far, so good. Good. <laughs> With, That's great. Yeah, so far, so good. I mean, and I think some of that is if you can make the larger the sign-on bonus, I feel that the bigger concern that's going to be. So if you have a sign-on or retention bonus that's $100,000 and the clawback period is is three years, then that's going to be mm-hmm. a big check that somebody's going to have to cut if the agreement would come to an end. So I think there's some reasonableness and just some right. – that needs to come into play when you're thinking about the amount of, of those as well as the term mm-hmm. of the clawback. Clearly a longer clawback period – calls for smaller than paybacks if the agreement would terminate. But so far, so good. And I think as long as the agreement is properly structured and it's thoroughly communicated within that documentation, what happens over that clawback period, I I do think that helps. That's great. And that's good to hear from my perspective, because we always do worry about it. Burnout. How are you involved in sort of burnout situations? I know we had mentioned that as one of the topics or hot topics with you, but how does that come into play? Is that through the same bonusing situation? I'm I'm trying to imagine how that comes up. It comes out uh, mostly when we're analyzing the physician compensation related to the duties performed and the hours worked. Um, because folks, uh, you know, physicians want to take their time off. And sometimes coming into an arrangement, they want to be able to negotiate to take more time off than maybe as normal um, or standard for the organization. So there's nothing wrong with that. 
it just is a consideration that needs to be made from the hospital perspective. You know, if you are you getting one provider or are you getting one and a half of a provider or are you getting 0.75 of a provider and what do you need? Because if you are bringing in a provider that isn't uh, maybe uh, needing or requiring more time off than is standard, then that FTE status should be taken into account then when analyzing the physician compensation. We're seeing it on the back end too, interestingly, as it relates to retirement. As physicians are nearing retirement, they still want to work, they still want to keep up their skills, but yet you know, what are the provisions to limit the call coverage taken? For example, you know, is there an age out clause? Is there a provision in the agreement uh, when you near retirement to work less hours or to provide fewer administrative duties? We're seeing it on, on that end as well. That makes a lot of sense. And it, and it has to do, it sounds like, with being somewhat flexible in your approach and not quite so cookie cutter as, as, as people tend to like to do just because of the ease of it. So is there anything else that you can think of that we haven't covered today that are really hot topics in this FMV, fair market value, and commercial reasonableness area? One thing, we hit on uh, two things that we are seeing a lot of in the industry right now. One other thing relates to physician executives and medical directorships. So as we were talking about a moment ago with retention bonuses and sign-on bonuses, medical directorships are also notoriously known for being a way as a stopgap to make up for compensation potentially lost in in another area within a physician arrangement. So clearly, you have to have a need for that medical director. The duties have to be very well defined, and it shouldn't be used as a a stopgap or a make-whole arrangement. But with respect to physician executives, and I'm using a a physician executive, I'm terming that a little bit different than a medical director. A medical director normally is, you know, needed in the clinical course of the of the of the hospital. It might be needed for a center of excellence or a specific service line or um, related to other accreditations or or needs. Whereas a physician executive, you know, in addition to a chief medical officer. Because of the industry and the move towards value-based compensation, many physicians are finding themselves in executive roles other than just the chief medical officer. And that creates a whole new area of analyzing for physician compensation because then you have to delicately measure what what, are, what is the physician doing? What are the duties? What are the roles this physician is playing? What type of physician should be filling this role? And to the extent that there's any clinical component of the role still remaining, how do you balance the administrative and the clinical and ensure that it's still fair market value and commercially reasonable and makes sense um, because a lot of the survey data that's out there, while great and wonderful directionally and a great starting point, might not address the new roles that we're seeing in physician leadership. Yeah, and we have seen that. And one of the one of the complexities is obviously, as you mentioned, making sure holistically from a provider standpoint you don't have, for example, overlapping medical directorships that truly the services are needed. 
one of the other things I'm, I'm curious about, because it comes up quite a bit still, is the difference between comp for a clinical service, um, so the WRVU model, and, and what that comp looks like from a clinical perspective, and then what comp looks like on an admin or administrative services perspective, and how those can differ. Because what we see, obviously, and what we get pushed on is that those should look somewhat the same. And as you and I have discussed frequently, those two don't look the same. So can you talk a little bit about that? Right, absolutely. And and you hit the nail on the head. Sometimes they the clinical compensation tracks very closely to the administrative compensation, and sometimes it does not. It's really important in that situation to understand the role that the physician administrator is playing. So for example, if it's an administrative role where any type of physician could provide it. Uh, you, a primary care physician could serve in the role just as well as maybe perhaps a, a neurosurgeon or, or an orthopedic surgeon. Then in that case, you are looking at a general medical directorship rate, which is then a combination of all of the administrative hourly rates. So in that case, the, the neurosurgeon or the orthopedic surgeon would not be paid at their, at their specialty-specific hourly rates. It's only when that administrative role absolutely requires the expertise of that specialty-specific physician then do you rely more heavily on that specialty-specific administrative data? That makes that makes a ton of sense, and I think will be very helpful for, for our provider clients to hear. The other piece of it from our perspective is also documentation of services being provided. Have you been in situations where you've come back to analyze and had situations where documentation may not have been as fulsome as it needed to be? I know from our perspective, we see it, unfortunately, and it can result in some self-disclosure situations. But from your perspective, how important is it as you're going in to, to understand kind of the services to be rendered and, and make sure to the extent those roles have existed in the past, to see that documentation. Absolutely. I think the documentation is very important and and absolutely because, I mean, and and we get it, timesheets are a drag, right? <laughs> and But it's very important from a compliance perspective to know that in that hour, what was happening from an agreement perspective? What is the compensation being paid for? And if that's not documented in some form or fashion, then the assumption might be one that you don't want. So it is best to make sure that the documentation is available to support the the duties performed by the physician in that administrative role. And those need to be clearly outlined um, in the contractual agreement. In other words, you know, paying an hour of a medical directorship for reading the newspaper probably isn't what the physician, uh, what, what the arrangement uh, bargained for and um, probably shouldn't be paying for that. Um, so it, it is important and it's important to monitor those timesheets as well. It would be very easy for a physician in a normal course of a week or a month to say, these are the, these are the standard things that I always do. And in any week, I always perform four hours and I perform these four hours. So why not just copy my timesheet and change the date? 
And that becomes very, um, very curious. And it becomes just a little bit unnerving then problematic from a compliance perspective. Yeah, those timesheets are pesky. I agree with you. And, and are, you know, there is often complaints about them. But absolutely, if you're being paid for admin services, if you're being paid for medical director services, document, document, document. That's, you know, the constant refrain. Absolutely. <laughs> well, this has been fantastic, Angie. I mean, spending time with you and, and drilling down a little bit into these issues that are so impactful, frankly, from a Stark Law perspective, but also from an anti-kickback perspective, these issues come up as well. This has been really super helpful. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me today. Thank you, Jana. And thank you to Angie Caldwell from PYA for a great show. The constraints of the Stark Law and fair market value can have extreme consequences So today's show was very informative on some of the pitfalls for healthcare organizations. We appreciate you taking the time to join us today. We want to thank everyone for listening to the Healthcare Law Today podcast, your connection to timely legal updates in the healthcare industry. Healthcare Law Today is a monthly program, and we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast or to Foley's Healthcare Law Today blog at healthcarelawtoday.com. If you like this show, don't forget to subscribe and please rate us five stars. Until next time on the Healthcare Law Today podcast, I'm Judy Waltz at Foley and Lardner. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.